Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I wasn't going to start the program so soon, but didn't realize that I rearranged the music last week when I had some technical issues, so I was across the room dealing with Melissa and getting her in a chat room. There were problems with that. And didn't expect the program. I didn't expect to hear Braveheart so quickly, but I did. So here I am. It's about time I got started anyway, because this program is not going to be a short one. This is on the Gospel of John, part 39, the inevitability of persecution. Now I'm wondering if part 39 is right. It might be part 40. As we brought our commentary on the Gospel of John to the end of John chapter 15, in a presentation which we had called Genesis Synthesis. Yes, this is part 39. I apologize for the confusion. I must be getting old. We repeated some of the things that we had said over the previous chapters. First, because Christ himself had repeated some things that he had said earlier that same night. And secondly, because we wanted to elucidate the fact that many of the assertions which he had made in the gospel are intrinsically intertwined with the symbols and allegories which are found in the accounts in the opening chapters of Genesis. In turn, this helps us to understand and to prove that he is indeed the remedy for the fall of our race as it is recorded in Genesis, according to a plan which was first hinted at in the allegories of Genesis, and that this was planned by Yahweh from the beginning. So, in our commentary, we have sought to illustrate the fact that the plan of Yahweh our God for his creation was indeed known by him and was revealed through the scriptures as history progressed and has not changed course since the very beginning. We must not think that it would suddenly change course today or that our God would somehow forget his word, as we have the revelation of Christ, and therefore we can certainly determine what is unfolding as it happens. We can't tell the future, but we can see the truth of God as it happens. Now, as we proceed with John chapter 16, we are continuing with John's account of the things which Yahshua Christ had said to his disciples after they left the house where they had shared their so-called Last Supper. And they are apparently walking along on their way to the place where Christ would be arrested just before he was crucified. Throughout the discourse in chapter 15, Yahshua had encouraged his disciples to keep his commandments, that they would demonstrate their love for him if they did so, and in that manner they would abide in the love of God. Then he also exhorted them to love one another as he had loved them, and if they did that, they would also be his friends. So it is obvious 
that we cannot love our God if we despise or neglect one another. Then he warned them that the world would hate them because it also hated him, as it hated God himself. And once again, hinting that he would be taken from them, he had promised to be with them in spirit, in the form of the Holy Spirit. Now, provided that they keep all of these things and do them, as the dialogue continues in John chapter 16, he says to them, I have spoken these things to you in order that you are not entrapped. And it must have been a scribal error that the Codex Sinaiticus wants the word for not in this verse. Speaking to his disciples, Christ is warning them that the world will hate them, and he wants them to know ahead of time the risk which they were going to face for bearing his gospel. The Greek word rendered as entrapped here is skandalizo, a verb, which in the passive voice is defined by Liddell and Scott to mean to be made to stumble or to take offense. And therefore, the King James Version has offended. According to Joseph Thayer's Greek-English lexicon, the verb is found neither in secular authors nor in the Septuagint. Because of that, it is sometimes difficult to see the true sense of a word as it was used in the New Testament. There are a few words in the New Testament that do not appear in any other Greek writings. But the related noun is scandalon, which is defined in that same source as a trap or snare laid for an enemy. Christ was not warning them so that when they became embroiled with troubles, their feelings would be hurt. They would be offended. Rather, Christ was warning them so that they knew the risk of the dangers they were facing before they actually encountered any trouble, that they would know that the dangers of spreading his gospel were inevitable. He had already told them in the closing verse of chapter 15, And ye also shall bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. The noun, scandalon, is the source of our English word, scandal. It is translated as offense in the King James Version, where Peter spoke of Christ as a rock of offense, and Paul referred to the offense of the cross because the refusal of the enemies of God to accept the gospel of Christ was itself a trap, which was designed for them to be caught in, as they are to this very day. The noun appears in the Septuagint in the 69th Psalm, in a messianic prophecy against the enemies of God, where the word was translated literally by Brenton, and it says, They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare for them, and that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap, a scandalon.
Paul used that same noun, scandalon, when he cited that passage in Romans chapter 11, in verse 9. And David saith, let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense to them. Paul used the passage in the context of his own time in reference to those Israelites of Judea who continued to reject Christ, that their attempts to keep the law would become a trap for them because a man can't justify himself by keeping the law. Without the justification of Christ, we are all doomed. Evidently, a man who faces persecution on behalf of the cross of Christ is not entrapped if he knows ahead of time that he will be persecuted for upholding the word of God and that he will prevail even if he is abused and killed. That is because he should also be confident that he will prevail all the more for his testimony on behalf of the truth of God. Christ had already told his disciples, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 12, And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that they have nothing more than they could do, or that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom you shall fear, Fear him which, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yeah, I say unto you, fear him. In other words, we are all going to live after the death of our body. So for that reason, we should fear God. Here, he is conveying that same message in different words mixing both warnings and encouragement throughout his discourse in this chapter and in chapter 17, as he also did in chapters 14 and 15, as we explained several times. This is all, way, this is all the same conversation throughout the course of the same evening after the Last Supper and just before he is arrested. Now he continues with warnings. They will have put you out of the assembly halls. But the hour comes when anyone slaying you would suppose to be offering a service to Yahweh. The Jews were already threatening to put people out of the synagogues for accepting Christ, as we had read in John chapter 9, where Christ had healed the man who was blind from birth. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. So because he did wonderful and good things, Christ was rejected by the Jews, and anyone who witnessed his acts and believed him were also rejected by the Jews. Then we read in John chapter 12 that this was the policy in spite of the fact that many of the leaders of the Judeans did actually believe him where John had written that nevertheless among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, the church being more important than the truth of God. 
just as it is today. So we see that politics prevailed in Judea rather than and even in spite of the faith and in spite of scripture, even though the leaders of the province used Moses as the basis for their authority. Today we see the same phenomenon where the majority of people go along with laws and statutes and church doctrines which are contrary to Christ and contrary to the Christian ideals upon which our modern society was founded, even if they themselves don't believe that the laws, statutes, and doctrines are righteous. They still go along with them. Keeping the word of God was an anomaly then, and it is still an anomaly today. But today, after over a thousand years of mostly Christian governance in the West, we have once again arrived at a point in history where the word of God is diametrically opposed to the governments of men. Until perhaps 60 or 70 years ago, sodomy was considered an abomination and it was outlawed in nearly every state. Fornication or race mixing was also outlawed and the bastard children of such unions were rejected by society. Today, sodomites are a vaunted and protected class. Bastards are elevated as idols, and many other sins have become the acceptable norm, while Christians who continue to oppose these things on the basis of the Word of God have become the new demons <laughs> and the enemies of the empire. The hour comes when anyone slaying you would supposed to be offering a service to God. Of course, this was the fate of at least several of the apostles, beginning with the lesser James, the other son of Zebedee, and the brother of this, this apostle John, who was slain by Herod Agrippa I, about 42 AD, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 12. Then the elder James was stoned in Jerusalem about 62 AD, and right around that same time, Paul was executed by Nero. But the first such martyr mentioned in scripture is Stephen, who was not an apostle in Acts chapter 7. The book of Acts also records some of the many persecutions which Paul of Tarsus and others had suffered by the Jews. Although Paul had survived having been stoned at the instigation of Jews from Antioch and Iconium and several other persecutions before he finally arrived in Rome. There are fantastic tales of the ministries and ultimate deaths of most of the other apostles, but none of them are historical in nature, nor are they found in Scripture, while some are even contrary to Scripture. So those we will not repeat. However, the persecution of Christians persisted long after the apostolic age, and early Christians, such as Tertullian, who wrote in the early 3rd century, had asserted that the Jews were behind those persecutions, either executing them or instigating the Romans to execute them.
unconverted or pagan Romans had mostly learned of Christianity from the complaints and slanders of the Jews. So what the Jews were saying about Christians is reflected in the writings of secular historians such as Cornelius Tacitus. In Book 15 of his Annals of Rome, for example, he wrote of the sinister belief of Christians and described them as a class hated for their abominations. It seems that the Jews were just as much the masters of projection in propaganda in ancient times as well as they are today. Tacitus went on to mention the execution of Christ himself and called the Christian faith a most mischievous superstition, while going on to justify the persecution of Christians for their hatred against mankind. Once again, we see that same phenomenon today, where Christians who despise or reject sinners are accused of being hateful. Jewish organizations such as the ADL and the SPLC, the Southern Poverty Law Center, and the Jewish Anti-Defamation League, which exists in order to defame Christians, they list even rather harmless, lukewarm Christians, such as those at the American Fundamentalist Family Research Council, on their lists of so-called hate groups, because they rightfully reject sodomy and abortion, which is the murder of unborn children. The truth is that such Christians are only trying to obey what their God requires of them, at least in part, which is to love their God and keep his commandments, which require them to ostracize such sinners. Until recently, such Christians were the political majority and their professions were the prevailing ideology and they were considered normal. Now, a few decades later, they are demonized by the enemies of Christ and government policy is favoring his enemies. In our opinion, under this current trend, greater persecution of even marginal Christians is imminent. Tacitus went on to describe the resulting execution and torture of Christians, where he said, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt, to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show in the circus while he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or stood aloft on a car or a carriage. Hence, even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion for it was not, as it seemed, for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. So, although Tacitus realized that Christians were being executed to satisfy Nero's own lust for bloodshed, he nevertheless admitted that the deaths of Christians seemed to be for the public good, 
a profession which certainly invokes the words of Christ here in John. Chapter 16, verse 2. We cannot help but to notice that today, and for the past several decades, Christians have been ridiculed, demonized, and dehumanized by the Jewish-controlled media, and the next logical step in that process is to silence them, and if they will not be silenced, then to eliminate them from society for the public good. This may not be the outcome, but it is certainly the course which much of the media and Jewish organizations such as the ADL and SPLC are urging the wider society to take. There is now a new program called Hate Base, which local governments are being encouraged to participate in so that so-called hate speech can be monitored. This is now just now being promoted in American cities and Chattanooga, Tennessee is one of the first among them. We can be certain that this will also be used to silence Christians or to persecute those who will not be silent. Another witness to Christian persecution, another ancient witness, is Pliny the Younger, who as governor of Bithynia had written letters to the emperor Trajan inquiring as to how to deal with Christians. In his letters, Pliny had called Christianity a depraved, excessive superstition and said, for many persons of every age, every rank, this is about 113 AD, 113 AD, perhaps 80 years after the crucifixion, for many persons of every age, every rank, and also of both sexes are and will be endangered. For the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. But it seems possible to check and cure it. Pliny was inquiring of how the, how he was inquiring of the emperor just how far he should go to execute Christians. And he wrote, is pardon to be granted for repentance? Or if a man has once been a Christian, is it irrelevant whether he has ceased to be one? Is the name itself to be punished, even without offenses, or only the offenses perpetrated in connection with the name? Then he wrote of what he had already done to punish them. And he said, meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have followed the following procedure. I interrogated them as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For that, I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserved to be punished. There were others possessed of the same folly, but because they were Roman citizens, I signed an order for them to be transferred to Rome.
as a digression. It is evident that since Paul was also a Roman citizen, he was able to appeal to Caesar and was sent to Rome in that same manner. But Christ was not a Roman citizen, so he had no avenue of appeal, even if he wanted one. But of course, he did not want one. But in spite of the slanders of the Jews, even his own letter betrays the fact that Pliny had no real crime with which to charge Christians except for their professed belief and for their refusal to worship the gods of the empire. Speaking of those who were accused of being Christians and who had recanted their Christianity once they were brought to trial, he wrote, in part, they all worshiped your image and the statues of the gods, and cursed Christ. Once they did that, Pliny absolved them for their repentance, and then he was able to question them. So he continued and wrote, They asserted, however, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a god and to bind themselves by oath, not to do some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food. So the only crime which Christians had committed in the eyes of Pliny was to worship Christ as God rather than to worship the emperor and the idols of Rome as gods. Other than that, he could not really protest anything else which he was told, as even the Romans had laws forbidding fraud, theft, and adultery, and laws or customs regarding trust and the payments of debts. The Apostle Peter wrote in chapter 4 of his first epistle, If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet, if any man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. These words still stand today. They are timeless. Today, Christians are once again being forced to worship the gods of the empire and are compelled to accept all of the sins of those who worship the beast. Modern Jewry, and the Jewish-controlled media routinely demonize Christians who seek to keep even the most obvious and innocuous commandments of Christ, those found in the Ten Commandments. And the Jews make criminals out of men for little more than seeking to be left alone in their faith. So there is little doubt that if the Jews continue to have their way, that the time will come once again that anyone slaying you would supposed to be offering a service to God.
although Jews certainly do not worship the same God, and rather their rabbis see themselves as gods and messiahs. And in fact, even this process has already begun, but it is disguised as politics. The French Revolution was the purposeful destruction of white Christian France. The so-called war between the states in America was the purposeful destruction of the white Christian South, which also destroyed many of the white Christian men of the North. The Bolshevik Revolution was the purposeful destruction of white Christian Russia. And the so-called world wars were the purposeful destruction of white Christian Germany which also destroyed many white Christian men of the Anglo-American alliance. Now there is a worldwide war against white society everywhere, disguised as a number of social justice causes. And it is becoming more and more apparent that Jewry is behind it all, as the political mask has fallen to reveal the true nature of the devil who is waging that war. The revolutions of the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, the world wars of the 20th century, they were all persecutions of entire Christian nations perpetrated by world Jewry under the guise of politics or economics, and they are still ongoing today. We cannot help but to compare the plight of early Christians living under the Roman Empire to what true Christians may expect today in the, in the foreseeable trends existing under the modern empire. In Revelation chapter 17, there is a description of world empires as beasts, something which is also evident in the prophecies of Daniel. Ostensibly, these beasts are the empires which would rule over the children of Israel. But the revelation transcends Daniel to speak of a greater period of time. So there are more beast empires than those which were described by Daniel. So in that chapter we read, And there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven, and goes into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive powers kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And he saith unto me, the waters which thou sawest, where the whore sits, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. We have discussed these things at length in our commentary on the Revelation.
but we can only summarize them here. In Revelation chapter 12, the collective children of Israel are described as a woman which was taken into the wilderness to be nourished by angels. But the dragon would be wroth and continued to make war against her. Then in Revelation chapter 17, the apostle John is taken back to the wilderness to see the woman and finds that she has become a whore who has joined herself to the beast, a collective sort of mud shark. This is the state of our race today, where the white nations of Christendom have submitted themselves to the international banks, which are mostly controlled by a handful of Jewish banking families of New York and London, and they have succumbed to all of the policies of the Antichrists in the names of commerce, globalism, diversity, and world peace when there really is no peace as I believe it was Isaiah that had written, peace, peace, when there is no peace. After the ancient children of Israel had commingled for commercial reasons with their enemies. In this manner, the beast actually hates the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. So far, some of the vehicles by which this is accomplished are things such as excessive taxes, promotion of usury, political wars, currency manipulation, commodity speculation, international charity, mass immigration, and minority so-called crime, which are actually individual acts of war, without a doubt. And now, in more recent times, with the general acceptance of the sins of race-mixing fornication and sodomy, all of these things and more are among the fiery darts of the wicked mentioned by Paul of Tarsus in Ephesians chapter 6. Now, returning to... John chapter 16, Christ once again makes an exclamation that exposes the Jews of his time all the way down to the Jews of today as frauds who are not who they claim to be. And they shall do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. As the Apostle John wrote later, in his first epistle. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Blessed are those to whom Yahweh will not impute sin. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever does not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loves not his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. And why did he slay him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. When Christians are persecuted, they're persecuted for doing good, not for doing evil, as even Pliny had indirectly attested. 
Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. He that loves not his brother abides in death. Whosoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Paul of Tarsus had more precisely explained in Romans chapters 9 through 11 that the word of God did not fail when so many of the Judeans had rejected Christ. Because not all Judeans were true Israelites, and many of them were actually of Esau, whose children were also of Cain, through the Kenites and Canaanites with whom he had intermarried. Cain killed his supposed brother Abel, and likewise the Jews would persecute true Israelites turning to Christ, thereby hating their own supposed brethren. So in John's time, those who persecuted Christians were following the path which Cain also took, since because their seed was corrupt, their behavior was inevitable. The same stands for the Jews of today. But for John, the first sign that one had an assurance in Christ was that one kept the commandments of Christ and loved his brother. While John did express the same things which Paul had, his expressions were not as explicit. But John nevertheless described those who were rejecting Christ in a similar manner, where he wrote in 1 John chapter 2 that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. So John explained that those who rejected Christ did so because they were not true Israelites, in his own words. On the other hand, the apostles Peter, Jude, and Paul had all written of false brethren who infiltrated the assemblies of Christ in order to corrupt them. So we read in the gospel, as it is recorded in Mark chapter 7, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Regarding these Jews who rejected Christ, and whom Christ was warning would persecute Christians, if they were Israelites, they would have indeed known the Father, as Yahweh had said to the children of Israel in Amos chapter 3, Hear this word that Yahweh has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Then, in Jeremiah chapter 31, in a prophecy relating to the promise of a new covenant, we read, Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, 
not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they all shall know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. There is a similar promise found in Hosea chapter 2. And Christ was declared to be the bridegroom of the betrothal, where Yahweh had said, I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know Yahweh. So with all certainty, the Jews, the Judeans who had denied Christ and therefore kept the distinction of that name, are not of the children of Israel. Or we must imagine God himself to have failed and for Christ to have been making a profession of that failure here. But Christ is not making a profession of failure if the Jews who were his enemies, were not truly Israelites. Just as he had told them in John chapter 10, but you believe me not because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Here we see the phrase, they have not known the Father. The verb being in a form of a past tense, the aorist tense indicating that the action had already begun in the past so they were not his sheep in the first place. It is not that they were not his sheep because they did not believe him. Rather, he said that they did not believe him because they were not his sheep, and they were never his sheep. The gospel was taken to Europe, Mesopotamia, and Anatolia, because that is where his sheep were at the time. They were the twelve tribes scattered abroad. Not ten, but twelve, who were those to whom the apostles had brought his gospel. Once they were charged with that task, it was inevitable that the Jews would try to kill them just as they had killed Christ. This was also the experience which Paul of Tarsus had later had, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 22, verses 21 and 22 where the Jews wanted to kill Paul as soon as he said that Christ had wanted him to depart. For I will send thee far hence unto the nations. As soon as Paul said that, they wanted to kill him. Later, in Acts chapter 26, Paul described that same commission in different words, where he said, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise of God made unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why would the Jews care? 
if Paul took the gospel of Christ to far-off nations. He wasn't trying to force it on them. As Christ had warned them in John chapter 15, Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will also keep yours. That is the context for the continued discourse here. And in that manner, he continues. But I have spoken these things to you in order that when their hour should come, you may remember that I told you of them. Where Christ refers to their hour here, he must re be referring to the same hour which he had mentioned earlier in verse 2, where he said that the hour comes when anyone slaying you would suppose to be offering a service to God. But evidently, their hour has come at many times in history, as at least many of the apostles had suffered at diverse times, as the Jews continued to persecute Christianity long after the end of the apostolic age, and as the enemies of God continue to this day as the princes of this world. So the phrase seems to also have a greater transcendental meaning as we read in Revelation chapter 14. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, then worship him that made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the fountains of the waters. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. This is the hour we must await, and then their hour certainly will come. Now continuing with verse 4, which we didn't quite finish. Yet I did not tell you these things from the beginning, because I was with you. As we have recently discussed in this commentary, the apostles did not know everything they would ultimately need to know, even after having spent three and a half years in the company of Yahshua Christ himself. Rather, he had informed them that even after his departure, they would receive an ongoing education and revelation through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now, here, once again, Christ tells them that they still have things to know, and that there were things he had not yet told them, because as he says, I was with you. Later in the chapter, he once again tells them that they should be led to the truth by the Holy Spirit. Having the prescience of God, while there were many things that he taught them, he knew that no harm would come to them so long as he was with them. But now, as he is about to be taken from them, he wants them to be aware of the dangers that they must also face. With this, we may realize that even God himself dispenses information on a need-to-know basis. You won't have it ahead of time. Regardless of how much you study or read or hear or learn, even when you spend three and a half years with Christ. For reason that no man can know what it is that he does not know. Paul 
had warned the Corinthians in his first epistle to them in chapter 8 that knowledge puffs up, but charity edifies. And if any man thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man loves God, the same is known of him. Therefore, keeping the commandments of Christ and loving one's brother as well as God are more important to the Christian than knowledge. But Christians should also be confident that they shall know what they need to know when Yahweh God wants them to know it. Now he speaks to them of something which they should already know. But now I go to he who had sent me, and not one from among you should ask me, where do you go? Regardless of what is about to happen, they should be confident and know where he is going, since he has already told them precisely what would happen. Long before this, while they were in Golanitis, which is opposite the Jordan from Galilee, on the west bank of the Sea of Galilee, we read, as it is recorded in Mark chapter 8, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders, and of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Now, earlier this very same night, as it is recorded in John chapter 12, he said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that he that believes on me the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than me shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Then, a little later, he had told them, You have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you love me, you would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes to pass that when it has come, you might believe. Yet apparently they continued to grieve, not having the same confidence that he had that he would indeed overcome his impending death and be resurrected. So now he says, but because I have spoken these things to you, grief has filled your hearts. The apostles did not yet understand the implications of what he was telling them. That as he said in John chapter 14, in verse 28, If you loved me, you would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Then in John chapter 15, in reference to the duty they had as his disciples, he had told them, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Later the same evening, in John chapter 17, he speaks of them and says, And now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves, meaning anyone who receives the gospel. Evidently, he was only referring to his people who were in the world, and certainly not to his enemies. However, it was not until long after the crucifixion that the apostles did come to understand all of this, and then they wrote of the joy which they had in Christ. After they had seen his words come to pass with their own eyes, as he had told them. So writing his first epistle, 
This was the subject with which Peter had opened his letter, writing to the Christian assemblies of Anatolia and announcing to them that they were begotten to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if needs be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom not having seen you love, in whom, though now you see him not yet believing, you rejoice with joy, unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. So Peter was informing his readers of things which he began to learn only here, that the fact of the resurrection assured the people of Christ of their own resurrection, that they were in the hand of God and would not be lost, which we shall see later in this discourse in John chapter 17, and that they would certainly also face trials and persecutions on account of the faith as Christ had warned his apostles here, and as we have seen manifest in the records of the Romans from the writings of Tacitus and Pliny the Younger. It is also, persecutions are also evident, persecutions of Christians, in the writings of Josephus in his Antiquities. He actually records the death of John the Baptist, and he records the circumstances under which James, the brother of Jesus, the elder James, had been stoned. Now Christ tells them once again that it is better for them if he dies. They don't really understand this at this time. They do understand it later. Yet I speak the truth to you. It is an advantage to you that I depart. For if I would not depart, the advocate shall not come to you. But if I go, I shall send him to you. The advocate, meaning the Holy Spirit. The third century papyrus, P66, wants the last clause of this phrase where it says, but if I go, I shall send him to you. All the other manuscripts have it, of course. As a digression, the pronouns used to refer to the Holy Spirit are often divided in the manuscripts between the masculine and neuter genders. Yes, in language, there are more than two genders, but not in biology. Saying that, however, will get a Christian persecuted. In John chapter 14, verse 16, the, the pronoun another is masculine. Yet the first pronoun in 1417 is neuter, and the manuscripts are divided between the neuter and the masculine on two occasions later in that verse. In 1426, the first pronoun referring to the advocate is neuter, and the second is masculine. In 1526, the first and third pronouns are masculine, and the second is neuter, although that may refer to the truth rather than to the spirit. Here and throughout chapter 16, 
the pronouns referring to the Holy Spirit are all masculine. We do have an assurance that trannies are an abomination to God, and the Spirit is never referred to with a feminine pronoun. But that profession may also get a Christian persecuted. The transcendental meaning of this passage, that it is better for the disciples if Christ goes to the Father, is only evident in an understanding of the relationship between Yahweh God and Israel. The children of Israel were estranged from Yahweh for the idolatry and fornication which they had committed, and they remained under penalty of death for that reason. Yet many of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were without condition and had to be kept by God. This leaves Yahweh with but one choice, which is to die on their behalf so that they could be freed from the penalty of the law. So Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman which has a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he lives. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if, while her husband lives, she be married to another man, she be called an adulteress. But if the husband be dead, she is freed from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For this Christ had to die, that being Yahweh God incarnate, his death would free the children of Israel from the condemnation of the law. For which reason Paul explained it in this manner. Without that release from the penalty of death found in the law, the children of Israel could not be reconciled to God through Christ. They could not have received his spirit. They could not have received the Holy Spirit. Later, in many of his epistles, for that same reason, Paul would refer to his ministry as a ministry of reconciliation. His purpose was to reconcile the 12 tribes to God. He had no other purpose in his ministry. That is the purpose that he himself expressly stated in Acts chapter 26. And it's evident in every one of his epistles. But in his death and resurrection, the children of Israel must also know that they also shall live. The promise of eternal life is manifest first in Christ himself. As Paul had also explained in Romans chapter 8, speaking of the true death which Christians should have to Christ, which is to depart from sin, contrasted to the debt of bondage which their ancestors had under the law, where he wrote, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you live through the Spirit, but if you through the Spirit do mortify or put to death 
the deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby you cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So if we, in that manner, we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together with him. That is the Christian promise, that since Christ was resurrected, we shall all be resurrected, if indeed we are among the children of Israel. With that, once again we should perceive that persecution is inevitable, as those who seek to do good and to build the kingdom of heaven are hated by the evil in the world. Then as Paul concluded that if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together, it is evident that the persecution of Christians is to them a sign of the assurance of the reward, which is eternal life with Christ. Paul spoke to the Philippians in this same manner, assuring them that if they stood up to the adversaries of Christ, that in that in itself was an assurance of their salvation. In Philippians chapter 1, where he wrote, And in nothing being frightened by the opposition, which to them is an indication of destruction, but of your preservation, and this from Yahweh. In other words, that's why Jews hate the spread of Christianity, because Christianity is true, and Christians have eternal life in Christ, and the faith of Christians is a testimony to the Jew that he is going to be destroyed. Paul goes on to say, because to you it has been offered concerning Christ, not only to believe in him, but also in behalf of him to suffer, having that same struggle like you have seen with me, and now you hear of with me. Persecution is inevitable. Paul had written again in the same manner in the earliest of his epistles, the first epistle to the Thessalonians in his opening chapter, where he said, because our good message has come to you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with much certainty, just as you know how we had been among you for your sake, and you have become imitators of us and of the prince accepting the word in much tribulation with joy of the Holy Spirit. Then a little later in chapter 2, he explains some of that tribulation. You remember, brethren, our labor and hardship, working night and day so as not to burden any of you. We proclaim to you the good message of Yahweh. You and Yahweh are witnesses. How devoutly and righteously and blamelessly we have been with you who believe exactly as you know, since each one of you, as a father to his own children, were we exhorting you and encouraging and testifying for you to walk worthily of Yahweh, who is calling you into his own kingdom and honor. And for this reason, we also give thanks to Yahweh incessantly, because receiving from us the word of report of Yahweh, 
you accept not a word of man, but just as it truly is, Yahweh's word, which also operates within you who believe. You have become imitators, brethren, of the assemblies of Yahweh in Judea, which are among, among the number of Christ Yahshua, because the same things even you have suffered by your own tribesmen. Likewise, they also suffered by the Judeans, those who killed both Prince Yahshua and the prophets, and banished us, and are not pleasing to Yahweh, and contrary to all men, preventing us from speaking to the nations, that they would be preserved. Preventing us from speaking to the nations, the same thing which Paul would be hated for. This epistle is written probably about 42, 43 AD, if my memory serves me correctly, maybe even a little earlier. And the epistles to the Thessalonians were his very first epistles. He wrote them while he was in Corinth. So maybe it was a little later because he was in Corinth. Maybe it was about 49 or 50 AD. I'm sorry. So 10 years later, eight years later, nine years later, when he was arrested, at least eight years later, when he was arrested, he gave that speech to those people in Jerusalem and saw that as soon as he said that he wanted to deliver the gospel to the nations, the Jews in Jerusalem wanted to kill him in Luke chapter 22. Preventing us from speaking to the nations that they would be preserved, for which to fill their errors at all times, but the wrath has come upon them at last. Paul looked forward to the imminent destruction of Jewry, not understanding that they would be completely destroyed. Not yet, anyway. The Jews hated Christians in Paul's time, and they continue to hate Christians to this very day for accepting Paul's message and receiving the gospel of Christ. And therefore, the wrath of God certainly will come upon them at last. So Christ next speaks to his disciples in relation to that same thing, speaking of the Holy Spirit. And coming, he shall convict society concerning error or sin, and concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment. <clears throat> it was only by the Holy Spirit that the relatively small sect of Christians could ever have spread the gospel of Christ to the point where it had prevailed over the opposition of the Jews, over the multitude of pagan philosophies among the Greeks, and over the pagan idolatry and god-emperors of the Romans, as they worshipped the images of their emperors as if they were gods. But as Christianity prevailed, the society did become convicted concerning sin and righteousness, and eventually ceased from much of its idolatry, although the later churches of the empire only painted a supposedly Christian face over some of the aspects of their idolatry. But more importantly, the nations of Europe adopted laws which were for the most part grounded upon Christian principles. If Christianity did not prevail, 
these words could not have come true. But because Christianity did prevail in the face of serious persecution and against great opposition and many other long-established beliefs and philosophies, we know that Christ is God and that God is true. Now Christ explains his statement. Indeed, concerning error or sin, because they do not believe in me. Ultimately, those who did not accept Christ were driven from society. Once the Byzantine emperors had accepted Christianity, but in the meantime, Jerusalem was destroyed at the hands of the Romans, and many of the enemies of Christ were destroyed in the revolts of the Judeans in the first and second centuries, especially in Palestine and in Egypt. I'm speaking about the Bar Kokhba Rebellion and the Kedos War. These, revol these revolts greatly weakened the power of the Jews within the pagan Roman society until when the Romans finally accepted Christianity and the Jews were ostracized almost completely. Christ continues, Then concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you shall see me no longer. From later in the same chapter of John, later in the same discourse, Yahshua explained to them, I have spoken these things to you that in me you should have peace. In society, you have distress, but you must have courage. I have prevailed over society. It was the promise of Yahweh in the Old Testament to execute his righteousness. And that righteousness meant a guarantee of preservation to the children of Israel. This is found in Isaiah chapter 45. Verily, Thou art a God that hidest thyself, O God of Israel, the Savior. And then skipping to verse 17 from verse 15. But Israel shall be saved in Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. For thus saith Yahweh that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He has established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. For I am Yahweh, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said not unto the seed of Jacob, Seek ye me in vain. I, Yahweh, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations, meaning those who survived the captivities of Assyria and Babylon, who eventually migrated into Europe. Tell ye, and bring them near. Yeah, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient times? Who has told it from that time? Have not I Yahweh? And there is no God else besides me. A just God and a Savior, there is none beside me. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, meaning the children of Israel, who were to be scattered to the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, 
every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, In Yahweh have I righteousness and strength, which is an apparent reference to those who would bear the gospel of Christ. Even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. That is the righteousness of God. The reconciliation of Israel is the fulfillment of the righteousness of God. Men may not understand that righteousness. They might see sin, grievous sin, in one Israelite or another, but eventually every knee shall bow, and the fact that the reconciliation of Israel is complete, all the seed of Israel shall be justified, as it says in verse 25, that is the fulfillment of the righteousness of God because he declares things that are right, not men. We can't declare them. Then Christ speaks concerning his enemies. Then concerning judgment because the ruler of this society has been judged. In the King James Version, that is, the prince of this world, which actually does kind of sound better. In John chapter 5, we read, For just as the Father has life in himself, thusly also has he given the Son to have life in himself. And he has authority given to him, he has given authority to him to make judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not be astonished at this, because the hour comes in which all those in the tomb shall hear his voice, and they shall go forth, those having done good things to a resurrection of life, but those having practiced wicked things to a resurrection of judgment. All of the children of Israel will be saved. Not all of them will like it equally, as Daniel says in chapter 12. Some will be resurrected to an eternal reproach. They will have a disgrace by which they must spend eternity. The resurrection of Christ proves that these words are also true, as he said in John chapter 10, that therefore does my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself, and I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Actually, the term Daniel used is everlasting contempt, the same as eternal reproach. I'm just paraphrasing. Ostensibly, among the children of Israel, those who have done good are already given life, and those who have sinned will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to answer for their sins. Those who have sinned and not repented. Paul of Tarsus explained this in the closing verses of 1 Timothy chapter 5, where he wrote that some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment. They are the people who repent. And some men they follow after. Likewise also, the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise 
cannot be hid. However, in the end, as we have already read in Isaiah chapter 45, it is evident that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear, and in Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. Yet the enemies of Christ, whom he often referred to collectively as the prince of this world, is already condemned. So Christ avows that the ruler of this society has been judged. In Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, the ruler of this society is identified as the devil who claimed to rule over all the kingdoms of the world. So by that, we may understand the identity of both this ruler and that devil. There is nothing that the enemies of God can do to redeem themselves, and he will certainly not redeem them. Then all of the goat nations also had their fate in the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, where it is evident that they cannot change the fate for which they are already prepared. As John the Baptist had said, upon the announcement of the gospel, the axe was already laid to the root of the trees. And in Matthew chapter 7, Christ had attested that even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. As we had explained in our recent presentation, identifying the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Nations of men are descended either from the tree of life, which is the Adamic race created by Yahweh God, or from the corrupt tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So in that manner, in the end, all of the goat nations, the non-Adamic nations, shall join the devil and his angels in the lake of fire. They have all already been judged. The crucifixion of Christ precipitated the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, as it was prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. The coming of Christ, whom Daniel calls Messiah the Prince, is prophesied along with the destruction of Jerusalem, and it is dated in periods of weeks, each week evidently standing for seven years in prophecy, a day for a year, as it also says in Ezekiel and I believe in Deuteronomy. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem Unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. That's sixty-nine weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war, Desolations are determined. 
So Christ began his ministry approximately 483 years after Jerusalem was rebuilt in the days of Ezra, which were 69 prophetic weeks. And he was cut off or crucified in the midst of the 70th week, about three and a half years before or after the start of his ministry. Then, after his crucifixion, the people of the prince, the Romans, had destroyed Jerusalem. That judged the ruler of this society in the immediate sense. But the Jews and Antichrists were not done away with completely. This we also read in Revelation chapter 12, where the dragon is identified with the Edomite king Herod, who sought to kill the Christ child as soon as he was born. But it also speaks of a time long before Christ, where it says in verse 13, And when the dragon saw that he had been cast down into the earth, he persecuted the woman who had given birth to the man-child. Giving our commentary on that chapter here in February of 2011, we said the following, The dragon was cast down to earth before the creation of Adam. And the result was the seduction of Eve and the proclamation of eternal enmity between the two disparate groups found in Genesis 3.15. The proof of that is that the dragon is also identified with the that old serpent, meaning the serpent of Genesis 3.15. The dragon was cast down to earth again in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed. The dispersed Jews were later behind all of the persecutions of Christians until the time of Constantine. However, once Christianity became recognized by Rome, the dragon was locked away in a pit, which shall be discussed at length at Revelation chapter 20. I didn't discuss it in my Revelation chapter 12 presentation. The dragon was again cast down to the earth with the Reformation when it became evident that the Jewish popes would not have power over the main of the children of Yahweh. From that time, the Saxon peoples, who with the help of their God freed themselves from the beast tyrants, which is a topic of discussion for Revelation chapter 13, I had been referring to commentaries I had not even written at this time, have had nothing but persecutions from the dragon in the Thirty Years' War, and from the time of the French Revolution, when Satan fully emerged from the pit, which I also discussed in my Revelation chapter 20 presentation, and all the wars and revolutions of Europe which have occurred since then, which have all been instigated by the Jews. In November of 2018, the Vatican made an announcement that over 300 million so-called Christians were being persecuted in 23 different countries. Then it said that leading those countries were China, India, North Korea, Myanmar, Vietnam, and Kyrgyzstan. But it said nothing about white Christians, and it was only to white nations that the original apostles had brought the gospel of Christ, because only among white nations are found the lost sheep of the house of Israel for whom Christ had come. But that being said, why aren't white Christians being persecuted today? For example, why aren't Christians in the 
Catholic or Baptist or Lutheran or Pentecostal churches of America being persecuted. They point to the persecution of these supposed Christians in China or some other faraway place as if they can use that as an excuse by which to justify themselves because they are not persecuted. The truth is that European or American Christians have not recently been persecuted, at least as individuals, because they have not stood for Christ. They attend church for an hour or two on Sunday. Then they watch football or some other sport for the rest of the day, which is idolatry. And then they ignore Christ as they work and engage in other entertainments throughout the rest of the week. None of that is anything like the persecutions of which Christ had warned his disciples. But if they acted as Christians, if they rejected sodomy and sodomites, and fornication, and those who commit such sins as the gospel commands that they do, and if they rejected the Jews for denying Christ, as the scriptures also command, then they would be persecuted, and they would lose their jobs and be put out from the churches. As it says in the same chapter of the Revelation, and the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. But as Christ had said elsewhere in the Revelation, in chapter 3, in his message to the church of the Laodiceans, a word which may mean self-righteous people, Laodiceans it might be pronounced in the modern churches, the Greek pronunciation is actually Laodicaeans. I know thy works, that thou art neither hot nor cold. I would, or I wish, that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. On the other hand, these marginal Christians, Christians in name only, are being persecuted, and they are too blind to see it. They are persecuted by political means, with excessive taxes, and with the loss of their children in foreign wars. They are persecuted under the tyranny of the ungodly system that they are in agreement with, having subjected themselves to its idolatry. Millions of men and women every year are brutalized, raped, murdered, or robbed by Negroes or Mexicans or other aliens who are responsible for at least 90% of the violent crime, even though they are not even 50% of the population. There are many other ways in which they are persecuted, but it is not because they stand for Christ and keep his commandments. So they are persecuted for the wrong reasons, and their God will never reward them for their persecution. In fact, it is their God who allows them to suffer in this manner because of their disobedience. Their persecution is not for Christ, but they suffer anyway, just as the ancient Israelites suffered without even realizing it, 
having burnt their own children in the fires of Moloch and given themselves up to all sorts of perversion in the high places of Baal. So, one way or another, persecution is indeed inevitable. But in the end, it will be better to take a stand and to have been persecuted for Christ than to have suffered punishment for idolatry, as Paul had written in his second epistle to Timothy. Yeah, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Thank you for listening. We will resume with our commentary on John chapter 16, Yahweh willing, next Friday. And good night. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel and the eternal enemy of every Jew.